We looked last week at verses 2 through 11, and I promised to come back to give a closer look at verses 10 and 11 today, where we find the theme of suffering given to us. And I cannot in one sermon say everything that ought to be said about suffering, but I'm tempted to try. So, if I go long, I apologize in advance. We're going to start uh, where the sentence begins, in the middle of verse 8, even though our focus is just going to be on the last two verses. This is God's Word. For His sake... I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is God's word. Let's pray that he would teach us this morning. Heavenly Father, when we think of suffering, we do not think of it as anything of worth, much less of surpassing worth. Yet you tell us here in your word that suffering is something, something important in the life of a believer and in the life of your covenant community, your church. And so I pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see how that is so. And that in seeing how this is so, we might find ourselves more rooted in Christ, more committed to him, more in awe and wonder at him, who is our Savior and Lord. Make this so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So it is hard to make sense of suffering. I've preached on this passage here uh, at least once, I think twice now. Maybe the third time's the charm. It's hard to make sense of suffering. We know this just on on a personal level. Why? Why has God seen fit to let our little church lose so many people in the past 12 months or so, to cancer? Why why are so many people suffering with afflictions from without, diseases within, enduring hardship and trial and tribulation, watching loved ones suffer, and go astray? Why? 
when we turn to the scriptures, we don't, we don't always find the answers that we seek. We see in Job 40 plus chapters of wrestling with suffering and the believer's place in it and God's reasons for it. And we get to the end and God says, I'm God. And that's, that's the only answer we get. We read in the Psalms, the psalmist crying out, How long, O Lord? Where are you, O Lord? Why, O Lord? And an answer is not always forthcoming. And we ourselves, if we have ever endured any suffering at all, have cried out, Why? And it's hard to make sense of it. It just produces more questions. And everybody asks different sorts of questions. There are those who see their religious faith as as something they pursue in order to gain favor from God. There are uh, hints of of that in Philippians, that, that it is that sort of individual that Paul is opposing, those that would seek to, to earn merit from God. But they would see suffering as a trial to overcome. And when they endure it, when they face it, they seek to conquer it, and they're asking the question all through the way, is God watching me? Does he see? Does he know? Does he approve of me now because of how I've dealt with this? There are those who are just entirely skeptical about the existence of God altogether. Those that uh, the church in Philippi no doubt encountered on a day-to-day basis. And they see suffering too often as proof that God doesn't exist at all. They're asking questions like, if God is all-powerful, and if God is all-good, why is there suffering at all? Is God Really good. There are those who have endured great suffering and great trial, who have endured hurts and pains that run deep in their soul. And some of those, not all, but some of those, have endured such deep woundedness that suffering becomes for them a defining identity. I am the wounded. I am the sufferer. And they find themselves asking the question, is the Lord angry with me? Has he forsaken me? We have questions. But all too often, we ask the wrong question. For the believer, when we encounter suffering and trial and tribulation, the scriptures 
teach us over and over and over again, from Job to the Psalms to the first passage in First Peter that we read earlier to Philippians, from beginning to end, that suffering is indispensable to knowing Jesus. In this life, suffering is not simply a trial to overcome, to impress God. It is not proof that there is no God. It is not a defining identity, but it is indispensable to knowing Christ. And rather than asking questions that call God to account, is God watching? Is he even good? Is he angry at me? For the Christian, when we endure suffering, it ought to prompt us to ask the question, what is the Lord leading me through? How is he teaching me more of himself? How is he showing me the way to everlasting life, even in this trial? When suffering arises, if you ask the wrong questions, you will find answers that aren't helpful. But in this passage, there are at least four questions that we can ask about suffering that I think will help us see how it is so indispensable to knowing Jesus and help us to become like Paul, where we can say, no matter what may come, above all, We long to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. The four questions. The first is this. Can you know Jesus at all? Who himself is a suffering savior if you yourself don't know suffering? Paul says here that he longs to share in Christ's suffering. That cuts against the the grain of how we typically think about suffering. We want to avoid it. We want to, to deny it. We want to conquer it. We want to escape it. We want nothing to do with suffering. It is antithetical to the American dream. It is antithetical to our comfort. We do not want it. Why then would Paul desire to share in the suffering of Christ? When I do weddings, I don't allow the bride and the groom to write their own vows. I'm sure that there are some out there who could have written wonderful vows that I would have given two thumbs up to, but I just don't do it on principle because I've heard too many vows that brides and grooms have written themselves in weddings I did not officiate where it just focuses on the here and the now and the moment and the good. I just love you so much right now, and I can't even just describe your beauty and your wonder, and it's you're just so kind. And, and all these things are wonderful and, and, and beautiful and maybe should be said more often, not just in a wedding service. But they don't say things like, and when sickness comes, I'm with you there. When we lose all of our financial health, I will still be around. Whether things are for better or for worse, 
I'm committed to you. See, in marriage, we aren't just getting somebody who's going to make us happy. We're not adding a component to our life that will bring more comfort and more happiness and more joy to us. We are committing ourselves to another and uniting ourselves to them. For the two become one flesh. And if we are to be united to Christ by faith, to be one with him, to be so deeply connected to him that that it can be said in Scripture that when Christ died, we died to sin. That when Christ rose again from the dead, we rose again to newness of life. That when Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, that we are right now presently seated with him in the heavenly places. If we are so united to Christ, we are going to share with him in everything. Not just the stuff we want. And our Savior is a suffering Savior. And we need him to be a suffering Savior. We do not need a sanitized Christ who comes and stretches stuff and pokes his chest out and says, look at me, I'm the Messiah, and I call down 12 legions of angels, and the Romans are gone, and yay, victory, let's make a TV series about it. We need a Savior who will take in his body our sin so that when we stand before God, we do not suffer the consequence of bringing our sin before a holy God. We need a Savior to suffer death on our behalf so that when we face death, we know that it's not the end, but that the benefits of knowing Christ will flow to us even in that moment. And we can rest in that truth that Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise and death is but the doorway there. We need a Savior who will suffer the shame and the rejection of men, who will bear our infirmities, who will bear our iniquities, so that we can become the righteousness of God. But if our Savior is a suffering Savior, can you really know him if you yourself don't know what it means to suffer? Another question is this. What does it even mean to grow in Christ and to follow after him? What what do we think that entails? Paul says here he wants to become like Jesus in his death. Maybe if I hadn't underlined those last three words, we could say, yes, I also want to become like Jesus. Maybe not in his death. Suddenly, I think, all too often, we actually want Jesus to become like us. We want him to conform to the image that we have conceived that he ought to be. Our heavenly vending machine, perhaps, or our heavenly guard who's going to protect us from hardship, or our heavenly provider who's going to give us all the good stuff so we don't have to scrimp and pinch our pennies and suffer in this life. 
But the scriptures tell us, Jesus himself tells us, it's enough for a student to become like his teacher. It's enough for a disciple to become like his master. It doesn't go the other way. And for us to grow in Christ is to become like him in every respect. Even in suffering. Even in death. This is why Jesus says, this is what it means to be my disciple. Deny yourself. Take up your cross, that instrument of death, and follow me. Sometimes we think that God is is there to baptize our plans. What's God's will for my life, we ask. But we don't really want to know what God wants for us. Peter just told us in 1 Peter 4, if it's God's will for you to suffer, no, 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 no. No, I want to know what God's will for my life is so that whenever I make a decision, I know that it's the right one and bad things won't happen. Should I take this job or this job? God, which one will you bless so that I'll be happy? Should I date this person or not? God, what, like, what? I just, I want it to make me glad and overflowing with joy. I don't want there to be any difficulty or arguments or hardship. Like, we, we talk about finding God's will for our lives, but really, subtly, we are asking God to baptize our plans. And he says, you come be my disciple. And if you're going to be my disciple, you're going to follow where I lead. And the way that I lead is through hardship and suffering and death. What do you think it really means to grow in Christ in every respect? And related to that, where do you think the resurrection power of God is revealed? Sometimes what we want from God is power to conquer whatever obstacle is in our way. I have a bad boss. They're really, you know, difficult to deal with and... God, I want you to remove that obstacle from my way. Give me a nice boss instead. Probably TJ's daily prayer. God, I I need a raise. Lord, I I need a better house. I need a a new car. Lord, I need the right lottery numbers. (laughs) And we think that if we get that power to conquer the obstacles in front of us, like, like, wow, that God is doing a thing. He's like, there's, it's just remarkable, this huge spectacle. Look at what God's done. And I wonder, I mean, I'm not saying God, God does do wonders. He does, I mean, he saved the Israelites with spectacle. So often the way God works, 
The way God speaks, the way God encourages us is in the whisper. It's in the stillness. And by definition, where resurrection power is most gloriously displayed, it's in death. If you want to see resurrection power in its fullness, face death. But that same resurrection power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead, that same resurrection power that he gives to us, he doesn't give to us simply to conquer and destroy the obstacles in front of us. He gives us resurrection power, this side of death, so that we can live in newness of life. If you want to see resurrection power at work, don't look for the people that are just killing it in the stock market. Don't look for the people that are just gathering all this respect in the community. Don't look for the people with the awesome Instagram accounts who are always standing up for all the right things, whatever those are today. Resurrection power doesn't come on the Instagram page. Watch for those who are bearing the fruit of the Spirit, who are seeing the old man, the sinful nature, the remnants of what God is getting rid of, that still exists in their bodies, that still exists in their souls, that sinful nature that this side of glory still remains in some form, though it has been defanged, Watch for those who are becoming like Christ and seeing that old man, that sinful nature, put more and more to death in the ordinary and how they treat their spouse and how they deal with disagreement and how they face hardship in their heart for the law in their rejection of sinful and addictive patterns. More and more, God gives us his resurrection power so that the old can be gone and the new creation come, so that the old man can be put to death and we can live in newness of life. If you want resurrection power, don't look for spectacle. Look for the fruit of the Spirit. So the last question would be this. Are we resistant to entering in to this type of suffering? Paul here says that by any means possible, he wants to attain the resurrection from the dead. And, and don't misunderstand, Paul's not scratching his head wondering, I don't know, I don't know how I'm going to get to be counted among the resurrected, uh, but I'm going to try everything until something works. I'm going to throw all the spaghetti on the wall and whichever noodle sticks, that's the one I'm going to go for. That's not, he's not confused or wondering. He's saying, by any means possible, whatever it 
takes, no matter the cost, regardless of what I may have to endure, the resurrection from the dead and eternal life with Christ my Lord in perfection and holiness and eternal joy is worth whatever I may face in this life. And if I have to suffer, I will suffer, even if I suffer the loss of all things. Do we know Jesus this way? The one who suffered for us, the one who did not have to leave his throne of glory, who did not have to take on the form of a servant, who did not have to learn obedience through suffering, who did not have to obey even unto death, who did not have to bear the sins of his people, who did not have to do any of that. Do we know Jesus? Whose great love for his people for the joy of fellowship with them, left everything and endured the cross for them. Do we know the suffering Savior? The Pharisees did not. This is why the, one of the reasons the religious leaders of his day rejected Christ. When Christ came, Living out Isaiah 53 before them, they thought to themselves, this isn't the Messiah. The Messiah is a conqueror. This Isaiah 53 suffering servant is someone else. God would never suffer. The anointed one would never endure such mundane treatment. But Jesus did come as a suffering servant. He did come to bear our iniquities. And he calls us to follow after him. Do you know him that way? Do we manifest this resistance to entering into suffering by avoiding stepping in to help others? I've seen some of you step in and endure the most shameful, disgraceful, trials in order to help someone else. And it's, it's a comfort. It leaves me standing in awe, wondering what kind of God is this that would lead someone to do that? Because it's altogether too easy to say, well, I tried. You know, I, I sent them an email. I, I talked to them. I, I tried to sort it out. But, but, we, but to... But we almost use that as an excuse to say, but I'm not going to go there again. I'm not going to step into that difficult space. Are we willing to follow Jesus, to become like him, like the one who stepped into our misery, into our suffering, into our shame, to bring us healing? Are we willing to be like that for those around us? Even especially those who, we feel who have wronged us deeply. Are we willing to share the suffering of Christ for the sake of that person? 
Do we expect this sort of suffering to be clean and convenient? Not, not today. I, I've, got, I've got things to do. I have plans. Well, I can, how about I just send you some money? I want to get my hands dirty. Like, like suffering is the opposite of clean and convenient. It's messy. It's dirty. It's hard. And it's the way Christ calls. And I want to be clear here. This isn't some spiritual form of masochism. We are not seeking out suffering. We are not called to enjoy it. There is in it a joy from Christ, a comfort that, know, that, that, that calms even the, the, the most aggrieved soul that, that your Lord knows this suffering and more. And he who came to seek and save you will not abandon you in the midst of this. Why was the man born blind in John chapter 9? Not because of anything he or his parents had done wrong, but that the glory of God might be revealed. God can be all good and all powerful and yet not the author of sin and not the inventor of suffering. And he can still yet turn that suffering for our good. You don't have to manufacture it. You don't have to enjoy it. In fact, we ought to lament it. We ought to grieve it. But there's a difference between grumbling against God in our suffering and grieving and lamenting that this sinful and broken world is afflicted with such misery. There is a groaning that even the creation manifests, longing for God to set it all right, and we can have that same groaning. And yet, have the confidence that if we endure suffering, it cannot compare to the glory that will be revealed in us when God does set all things right. And so we don't suffer the way the world suffers. The scriptures talk about grieving with hope. We suffer with the hope and the confidence that there is a resurrection from the dead. This is ludicrousness to our culture that keeps talking about, but what does the science say? And I'm all for what does the science say? But the science says nothing about resurrection. But God says, my people will follow me, not just through suffering, but through resurrection and everlasting life. We suffer differently because of what God has done and will do in and through us. So there is an opportunity when we suffer, not to shake our fist at God or question his judgment, but to ask him, to seek his face. Oh God, why? How long? Why would you allow this? What are you teaching me? What is it that you would have me know about who you are and what you are doing for your precious people, even me, your beloved child, in the midst of this trial? How would you have me 
become more like Christ? Where would you see your resurrection power revealed in me? Maybe we'll close with this question. What is the resurrection worth to you? In a culture that lives for the here and the now, right now, give it to me my way right away, we don't think about resurrection. Maybe we should more. What is the resurrection worth to you? For Paul, worth everything. Not just because he would live forever, but because he would live forever where Jesus is. And that the one that he looks on by faith, he would see with his own eyes. That all the joy and the comfort and blessing of God would be poured out upon him in its fullness. Forever. Suffering is indispensable to knowing Jesus in this life. Don't waste it. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, help us to turn our eyes to you, Lord. Not with Anger, not with doubt, not with judgment, but with faith, with hope, with love, that even in our hardest trials, Lord, we might be reminded who you are, that we might be encouraged to follow after you, even if it means becoming like you in your death. Help us to see that all of the blessing and benefits of Christ, they're not withheld from us in the midst of that suffering, but your resurrection power itself is at work in us, in it. So teach us what it means to put the sinful nature to death and to live in newness of life in Christ. Lord, help us as a church. Help us as individuals to not look at the last 12 months of grief and loss and pain, to not look at whatever trials and tribulations that we are going through as some sort of justification for us to pursue our selfish ends. Help us not to look upon these things and and buy into the satanic lie that God has rejected us. Help us to see, O God, where you might be at work conforming us to the likeness of Christ and bringing your resurrection power to bear on us today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.